Hello, my fellow music lovers. I'm Allison Hagendorf, and welcome to the show. This is where we celebrate the universal love of music and the rock and roll spirit that lives in each of us. Today's episode is one of my favorites. My guest is a multi-instrumentalist, producer, singer-songwriter, Grammy winner, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominee, mother of two boys, and beautiful human. The living legend Cheryl Crow is here today. And what an honor it is to have this conversation as part of my March lineup for Women's History Month and an incredible follow-up to last week's episode with the queen of rock and roll, Joan Jett. Cheryl and I talk all about the adversity she's had to face throughout her career, how she got her first big break, her musical journey to producing her own albums as well as for her heroes, being the bridge between icons and rising stars, and how heartbreak and life-threatening wake-up calls led her to be her best. It all starts now. I want to congratulate you on your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nomination. It's like, you deserve it. This is so exciting. How does, what does it mean Woo-hoo! to you? Um, okay, this is ridiculous. I just thought of this. But it reminds me of um, Molly Shannon on SNL going, I can kick. I'm 50. <laughs> I'm 50. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, it's <laughs> awesome. I can't believe how, how much it meant to me. I mean, honestly, I've not really thought of my career in the context of getting the Hall of Fame because it's like one of those things that feels like um, maybe after I'm dead and gone, I'll, people will look at me and think I mattered. And, you know, I've never thought of it in the context of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years in, um, I've been eligible for a couple of years and it just doesn't feel like that long. I feel like I'm still going. I feel like I'm still writing my story. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I do feel like I'm a long shot because there's so many, I mean, just this year alone, the spinners have been in for, you know, up for a few times and Soundgarden's been up. And I mean, Willie Nelson is, why is he not in? I mean, you know, I know, I know they did. Yeah. They haven't really gone deep in the country thing. I know Johnny's in, but you know, I mean, for a lot of us that ride that line between country and rock, you know, Willie is, um, you know, he's he's a foundational piece, like for me, like the Rolling Stones are, and like right. uh, Chris Christopherson is, and I mean, there's so many people that that are why I'm sitting here, and that's what the Hall of Fame's always meant to me. So I don't know, it's freaking. Just how Willie is one of a kind, Cheryl, you are one of a kind. So it makes perfect sense. And I, you have my pre-commitment. I'll be voting for you. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. I know my mom and dad have like voted like, I think, 10,000 <laughs> 10, times a day. <laughs> you can never vote enough. I also want to talk about your documentary, Cheryl, which I have seen not only once, but twice. Oh, gosh. I know everything about it. And it really spoke to me. And I, I think it was so well done because it, it goes into a deep dive, not only you as an artist, but as a human, as a woman, as a mother. And I think perhaps for the first time, it's really giving an inside look as you as the the individual. And I know that you were skeptical to do it at first, but how do you feel about it now? Are you glad that it's out? Well, I'm glad that it's out because in, in a strange way, it's liberating to have uh, control over your own story. And there's a lot of stuff that I've, I've never talked about that's in the documentary. I mean, I, people are always like, are you going to write a, you know, an autobiography? And I'm like, not unless a, a whole bunch of people die first. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
I'm glad that it's out because the, the response I've gotten has been not what I expected, which even from men that it, it sort of brought, brought them, brought people to an emotional place. And I think we forget, particularly with social media, the way it is that people who write, especially singer songwriters, um, they bring their life experience to it. And you forget that people that, that create art are generally sensitive and the world can be mean, you know, and especially now it can be mean. I'm very grateful. I am not coming up in this day and age of social media because I find it's very, um, it's just, it's without heart. It's a great place for people Mm -hmm. to unleash or dump their own, you know, lack of self-worth and, um, so, you know, it, it was a good experience to make it. And I will say that Amy and her crew uh, were, they were awesome. I told them right off the bat, I said, um, you know, I don't want this to be like a feel good behind the music. I want mm-hmm. I want, if I'm going to do this, I want to tell the story of a person who came in with a certain biology, um, you know, battling you know, some battling depression, um, Mm -hmm. and also not being able to grapple with the high highs, um, that being equally as, as strangely soul devastating. Um, but also, uh, you know, just the person behind the stories. That's one of the reasons that I called Harvey Mason before the Grammys this year. I didn't realize there wasn't a Grammy for best documentary. And, it wasn't my documentary I was upset about. It was like the Let It Let It Be documentary. Um uh I mean the Go-Go's. I, you know, oh, I honestly, I just yeah. I I'm like, okay, they were a pop band, but I forgot and I think I didn't even honor the fact that those women were not just pop no. cute pop stars. I mean, they were legit musicians and songwriters and so documentaries have you know, they have, uh, for me, uh, merit to, you know, helping us artists understand ourselves, but also helping Joe Public, who buys the records, to understand that a lot of us aren't doing this because we want to be famous. You know, a lot of us are doing mm-hmm. it because we feel called or that we have some sort of weird, you know, belly juju that is like, you got to take <laughs> take what you got and uh, show up with it and it's not all, it's not all fun. It's, you know, there's a lot of hard work in it. And there's Mm -hmm. also a lot of sort of putting yourself out there at risk of, um, a not making it and B once you make it being ripped apart. So I'm, I'm glad it's out. I've watched it twice. (laughs) Um, I watched it the first time I told Amy, I said, I will hate it because now that I'm 60, I hate how much I've aged. And you know, you, you look at it in the context of, oh, let's look at you when you're in your twenties. You are life goals. You are life goals at any age, Cheryl. You you look magnificent. Well, thank you. But I hear what you're saying. It's, you know, you're a tough critic on yourself, seeing yourself from, I get it, but you look beautiful and, and your honesty and your candor. You know, when you look at a retrospective of your, of your career, it's like, oh my God, I remember that. And, oh my gosh. And then you look at yourself sitting in the chair and you're like, oh my God. You know, so that you, you have to take the vanity out of it, but you know. I hear what you're saying, but please know that you look exquisite. And I, <laughs> I love that you shared all of, well, not all, it's only 94 minutes. So you fit in as much as you could in that time. But the obstacles 
and the hurdles that you've overcome, I think that will speak volumes to fans because everyone can relate to that. Um, but I think it's ironic that the hurdles, speaking of which, literally you were a track athlete and hurdle champion <laughs> growing up, which I feel like was a metaphor for how you would live the rest of your life as a force uh, and a champion. Oh, but I, I didn't that. realize that that you were an athlete growing up. And when I learned that, I'm like, that makes perfect sense. That is so cool. That's funny. I was telling Dolly Parton was in here the other day, which I mean, I, every once in a while, I'm just like, oh my God, I'm pitching myself. I can't believe Dolly Parton's in here. And she's asked me to sing on her rock record <sighs> with her and Emmy Lou. Oh, that's amazing. Um, ah. Yes. And I told her, I said, I met you 30 years ago. Um, we were in a uh, restaurant and I can see the restaurant, but I can't think of the name of it. But anyway, um, and I got introduced to her with her manager at the time. And we visited for a little bit and she made a funny comment because she is brilliant, but she made a comment about, well, I've never, I've never uh, walked on anybody, but I've had to walk around a few people. And I was thinking about that in the context of hurdles. I'm like, you know, I've never jumped on anybody, but I've jumped over a few people. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Yes. First of all, talk about ageless and timeless Dolly. I mean, so yeah. what is that like working with her on her rock album? I mean, that's pretty surreal. It's, I mean, to me, awards and stuff are incredible and it, to me it symbolizes you know hard work and staying power and stuff but those are the moments where you just go you know I can only see it in the context of being a, a girl from a tiny town yeah. uh, with th three stoplights uh, owning the records and then you can't envision sitting here with two huge heroes I mean not just for their staying power, but for how much they've meant to all of us. I mean, when I made my second record, I was in the studio that Emmy Lou made her record with Daniel Lanois. And I mean, just, just tracing back the threads, um, of the women and, and, and the artists who, um, have somehow in, in a, in a strange way, been six degrees, yeah. Uh, separated have meant so much. And um, so, man, that's what a, a gift, what an award and a reward to just be, you know, in conversation with them. The coolest. Yeah. When you were growing up in Kennett, Missouri, you would look to your records to sort of escape where you were. And oh, yeah, it was Bonnie Ray was one of those artists for you, right? That sort yeah. of like allow you to envision what women can do. Tell me more yeah. about that and discovering artists like Bonnie and, and, and Fleetwood Mac and, and how that changed you. Yeah. I mean, I had an older sister. Actually, I have two older sisters. And my oldest sister, who's five years older than me, um, and could and still can play by ear. And she would always, she always had the, like, she had Tapestry and she had James Taylor, uh, Mudside Slim and the Blue Horizon. And I would wear those records out. I would, you know, I'd, I'd pour over them and I would, you know, make up scenarios in my mind and I could play by ear too. And I would sit at the piano and I'd teach myself all these Joni songs and Elton John songs Aww. and anybody that played the piano, um, but, you know, when it came to, like, the people that I also loved, like Stevie Nicks singing Landslide um, or Goldust Woman, and I, I'm just like, that stuff is so guitar-based. I never I never knew how to do it. And I, I guess I was maybe 15 years old, and I went and saw uh, Bonnie Raitt play, and there she was fronting a band with a guitar, which and the guitar was just an extension of her. It wasn't yeah. like... It wasn't the thing that 
was the foundation of the song. It was an, ex it was an extension of her expression. And yet she's standing yeah. in front of these wily guys and they're just yeah. rocking it, you know, and I could see myself in that. And it sort of in a weird way gave me permission to pick up a bass guitar and, you know, uh, become the actor, you know, uh, until I could actually do it. That's so cool. And you had been, you were a music teacher and you had your kind of your first breakthrough gig was the McDonald's jingle. And that was maybe the first yeah. time you heard your, your voice nationwide, you know, was that the impetus for you to, to move to LA and really focus on your career? Yes. Uh, I had been a school teacher for a couple of years and this, uh, I guess about halfway through my second year of teaching, I was in a band. Um, I was in two, two bands. I was in an original band that I was just a backup singer for. And then I was in a cover band and I started doing some commercial work because one of the guys in the cover band produced commercials. And he was such a good producer that uh, some advertising people were coming in from Chicago. And so he was doing a McDonald's commercial and said, will you come in and sing it? And so I did, and it got picked up regionally, and then it got picked up nationally. In the meantime, before it ever went national, I started getting other commercials. He'd bring me in, and I would sing other commercials. And um, So, I mean, I was going with somebody uh, in the band I was singing backup with. We split up. I got in my car, and I drove to L.A. I mean, mm -hmm. every great story starts with a breakup. Yes. And I loaded my car with a cassette tape of commercials I'd sung, and original tunes. And I cried all the way to LA Aww. and then I immediately started going to, you know, I got a Thomas guide for all you little kids who have never seen anything other than a, you know, ways map. Right. Like I'm thumbing through the pages, trying to figure out where all the studios are. I took my tape to everybody and, and that was my beginning. And, you know, it's funny, everybody starts one way or another. And for me, mm -hmm. it was just, you know, there was a moment where our, I said to my mom and dad, I'm moving to LA. And they were like, oh no, when are you leaving? I think that was a Tuesday. And I said, I'm leaving Sunday. <laughs> and that was it. This week, I'm leaving. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm goodness. leaving Sunday. Yes. But honestly, your your work ethic is just so relentless and so impressive. And you, you learn that from the film. And you know, you get to LA, you're doing session work, you're 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 a backup vocalist for everyone. And then of course you audition for Michael Jackson's tour and you make it because you are amazing, his 1987 bad tour. So you go from playing local gigs and doing jingles to all of a sudden <laughs> playing arenas in Tokyo in front of like 65,000 yeah. people. I mean, what was that adjustment like? I can't even wrap my head around it. Well, I mean, I'd love to say that I was chosen because I was the best, but I mean, honestly, there are so many great singers in LA and I got my foot in the door. I mean, I'm very philosophical about things because I know people that are incredible singers who are amazing songwriters. And for whatever reason, some people make it and some don't. I do think that a large part of my story is tenacity, but I also think I, I've had, you know, a modicum of luck. Um, it was, that was a crazy time. I mean, I, I had to actually get a passport. I'd never been out of the country. Wow. And, um, you know, we rehearsed for, I think three weeks and Michael came the last two days 
um, I'd never experienced anything like it. It was basically like putting on a Broadway music production because everything was choreographed and, and it was the same show every night. And, uh, I mean, which does, I mean, that there is some comfort in that, but at the same time, nothing prepares you for walking out on your first night into a stadium of 75,000 people <sighs> and, uh, doing a show with arguably the biggest artist yes. in the world of maybe of all time of all time. But, um, right. yeah. So, uh, c really quick learning curve. And unfortunately, and I'm glad that you talk about this in the film about Michael's manager, uh, Frank DeLeo. And, and, and unfortunately you experienced sexual harassment from him and he's pressuring you to produce your new music. And he's guaranteeing you that, Oh, if, if I'm the producer, you're guaranteed a hit. And and the most, maybe the most disheartening part is that you actually go to seek help. You actually consult with an attorney and you're told anyone would kill to be in your position. So you actually had the strength and the bravery to get help. And unfortunately, no one's helping you. So how did you get through this? And and, and how did you overcome this? It's really upsetting. Yeah, um, it was, I mean, it definitely took its toll on me. For, for, for one thing, I think I'd had this sort of Pollyanna outlook on life. Um, I mean, and, uh, you know, rightfully so, because I was raised by two really hardworking people that were very artistic and who always said, if you're a good person and you stay on the straight and narrow and you work hard, good things will happen. Right. Right. And then to not only learn about how the music business operates, I mean, especially during that time with payola and, Mm -hmm. uh, and there also being quite, quite a lot of people in who were associated with the mob. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much more. Somebody may walk in with a, <laughs> um, but to be disheartened by that, to, to, to sort of understand that maybe it isn't all about talent, um, or putting your heart and soul out there. Maybe there's more to it. And then to have that experience of being, uh, sexually harassed and, and asking for help and yet having to grapple with all of the truths, which, well, right. not only does this go on, you should consider yourself lucky because you could possibly make it, you know? And, um, I came home really feeling confused about humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and that's a really hard place to be, you know, especially if you're somebody who already grapples with, uh, you know, I'm very literal about life. I, I, I don't understand why people do the things they do. I mean, every yeah. single day I'm right now grappling and like, look at our planet. Mm -hmm. There's so many things I just look at and go, but wait a minute, you're not doing the right thing. Where's your empathy and your compassion? And, yes. you know, it, it doesn't get easier when you learn these hard things about living, but you do sort of go into the micro or the macro and go, okay, where is, where is, where is someplace I can help? I can be helpful. Right. But at the time I didn't have any of that. I just basically came home from the tour, crawled into my bed yeah, and did not get up for, I mean, it was quite a long time until my mom showed up. I was going to ask. So, I mean, thank God to have that familial network, you know, to have someone who could physically come to your bedside and get you out of bed, you know, like what a gift. Um, what was that transition like? So your mother came and then how did you kind of start getting back in the studio and performing again and writing again? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I am an elder statesman, so to speak. 
things were different back then. I mean, therapy was like, unless you were like in a big city, people didn't talk about going to therapy. I mean, that was not the norm. If you went and asked for help, then there's something wrong with you. And mm -hmm. certainly coming from the Midwest, from a nice Protestant family, you go to church, you pray, or you talk to your minister. I mean, basically my mom walked into the door and said, I will not let you, I won't let you die. I'm not going to let you, I'm, we're going, I'm going to stand you on your feet. And if I have Aww. to walk you out the door and you know, that's, I'm a parent now, you're a parent now, you know mm -hmm. what you do for your kids. Yes. Um, and there was no shame in it. I had one really good friend in LA and she found a therapist and my mom drove me there. My first trip to a therapist. And that was the beginning of my not only getting help, but also investing in my mental health, investing mm -hmm. in my creativity. I mean, just investing in myself as a fragile person. And aren't we all, yeah. no matter if you're a creative person or, or, or what, we're all fragile. We're all, um, you know, in some ways or another, we've, we've gone through profound hurts and then they just stay, they lodge themselves and we act like everything's good and we just keep going. And then one day it doesn't, it's not good. So right. I'm a real advocate for people just to, you know, invest in your mental health like you would in uh, an ingrown toenail. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. At least I feel like that has gotten better where mental health is, is, is not as stigmatized as it was. You know, people are talking, that is one benefit of, of social media. People are speaking more about yes. it. And people are seeking help. And thank God, because that's something we can all benefit from is, is to communicate. Yes. And of course, empathy and compassion and finding therapy, whatever that means. So I'm so glad that you did. And your mother was the catalyst for it. So I'm so grateful. Yeah. When you kind of got back up on your feet, you were doing more session work. And it was it was Don Henley actually kind of gave you a piece of advice, right? That was very instrumental yes. for you. What did he say to you? Yeah, I had gone in and sung on his End of the Innocence album, and uh, he actually hired me because of the work I'd done with Michael. And he wound up being a profound uh, figure in my career, but also in my life. I mean, he's still a really dear friend of mine. And um, he was the one that after hearing some songs and knowing that um, I'd gotten a publishing deal, knowing that through my publishers, I was starting to get covers with other artists. And he said, you know, if you want to do this, if you want to be a solo artist, stop giving away your best songs. And so, um, he got me hooked up with, um, the record label that Irving Azoff was, was beginning after his run at, uh, RCA. Anyway, um, he was starting giant records. I didn't wind up at giant records, um, because I think earnestly or honestly, most people thought I was sleeping with Dawn. Otherwise, why would Dawn get me a Again, record deal? Another you know? example. So another be, I, because example. I'm a woman. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because she, you're a female. Not because she's great. <laughs> because <laughs> she must be sleeping with Dawn Henley. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, but everything worked out. But I think his friendship and his encouragement was, for me, was more important than a record deal at that moment in time. Wow. That's amazing. And something you yeah. actually don't talk about in the documentary was your first album was not released, right? Because it wasn't, yeah, it, the no. production wasn't right. It wasn't indicative of the type of work you wanted to do. How did it kind of 
get to that point where the production was not reflective of of the sound you wanted to put out. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing, you know. Uh, for me, I find that sometimes I do. I have to figure out by by doing it, uh, you know, by getting headlong into the wrong avenue to really know. Oh, wait a minute! I know, I know what I don't want to be doing, and that was kind of that experience. I mean, I, I wound up. This is bizarre in and of itself. And you may remember this, but in the eighties, you went to clubs, you stood on the sidewalk, you hoped you were going to get picked off the sidewalk. You know, if you wore a cute, tight black dress. Well, I got into a party at, I can't, it's called the Tropicana, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a, it was a party that Sting for Sting's record release. And I had just worked with one of his artists on Pangea. So I got to go and I met Hugh Padgham, who's a fantastic, I mean, he's, he's, uh, you know, instrumental in some of the sounds that were hugely commercial, uh, on Peter Gabriel's security and Peter Gabriel three and Genesis and, you know, that great yeah. big crashing snare. And just sonically, he created these incredible sounds, dream of the blue turtles. And, um, and I met him and talked to him for a little while and he asked me if I had any music and I was like, I just happened to have my, <laughs> here you go, here you go. <laughs> and, um, he listened to it and he called a few days later and said, I, this is not my bailiwick. I don't, you know, I don't know what you do, but I do have a relationship at A&M. I really like your stuff and I would love to work with you. So he took me in and got me signed. So it wasn't just that I didn't like the record. The trickiness of it was that the person that signed me made the album and I had to go in and say, look, this, mm -hmm. although it is beautiful sonically inside and out, it, it feels a little more like a sting record um, and say. a little less like a raunchy country rock record. And so they kind of let me slide on it. I mean, and it was an expensive mistake, you know, mm -hmm. it, I took to pay, you know, to cover that, uh, yeah. to cover two records on your first record was, you know, we sold a lot of records before we ever saw a dime. Right. Right. Well, it was an essential part of your journey and, and, and kudos yes, to was. you for being like, this is not me. I, I can't let this be my debut album. I, I respect that wholeheartedly. And then it all worked out because Tuesday night music club came out and was a smashing success and you were catapulted into stardom but that was also bittersweet for you yeah i mean it wasn't without its yeah it wasn't without its uh challenges also i mean there were there were quite a few things you know one one of the things is i came into a group of guys that were i mean artists in their own right each one of them unfortunately i came into that group at a time when none of them they were all feeling sort of the the bitterness of having not had the commercial hits they mm -hmm. deserved um and so i slid in you know, once again like pollyanna thinking of the possibilities and i think just i walked out of there like woohoo you know yeah um, and it just it, it was already surrounded with some muck um but unfortunately yes. Uh, or, or fortunately, uh, you know, it, it, it did really well and it, it, um, you know, it wound up teaching me a lot again. Mm -hmm. 
but I love how you kind of handle this situation. It's a perfect example of you can't always control what's happening around you, but you can control your response to it. So basically, you're like, I'll put out a new album. It's going to be self-titled. I will produce it myself. (laughs) I will play several instruments on it. And this is how I'm going to move forward and get more Grammys. You know, I was thinking that, um, you know, in hindsight, a good title for that record was then fuck you. <laughs> <You've been> like <laughs> Totally. Like that's what I'm it's like a mic drop, you know? It's like <laughs> yes, okay. yes, yes. You want me to prove myself? Here we go. Uh, yeah. And I just exactly. love but that, I, you know, that and honestly that was not the intention to to mm-hmm. come off of that and try to prove myself, you know. Um it was more my intention was to go in and close the door and remind myself how much I love doing what I do um, with the, you know, preconceived notion that I might not even put the record out. I may just hold it because I love it, you know, and mm-hmm. not share it because I'm not going to throw it to the swine, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, but it did wind up, you know, talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so many people that are in the hall and some of them you go, okay, well, they didn't, you know, they had, a, they had, you know, 20 years of hits or they we're only around for a small period, but look at the, look at the impact they had. And for me, if there's anything that I could bring to my legacy that I'm most proud of, it would be the production end of it because going in and fighting to produce my own record was weird. Um, just weird. I mean, uh, even on my third record, my, my A&R person, uh, wanted me to work with, I'd had a, really good success on the second record. And I got dumped at Interscope, got absorbed at Interscope and they wanted me to work with a man. And it's just like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get that. You think that's because you're a woman? It's like, well, I think there was no, well, a couple of things. I think there wasn't like a history of successful records that the business heads at labels could look at and go, oh yeah, this, this is normal. Um, but I also think that there's a control thing there and mm-hmm. wherever there are men and there are women and the men are sort of in charge of what happens with the output uh, that is created by a woman there's that tendency to think well I need to control this and mm-hmm. sh- she's not going to be equipped to do that you know right and it's it's just not that way and we're seeing it now I mean more obviously people are women are producing themselves um but at the time, it just was like, my manager was the one that said, after Bill left, after my producer left, yeah, he's like, um, just do it yourself. Record yourself like you always do when you do your demos. And he's like, you know what you're doing? Just do it. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to tell anybody. And we basically handed the record in fully done. And it all worked out for everyone, by the it way. It all worked I mean, out in successful. the end. Although, you, if you look at the artwork, I look like I've been in a charcoal fight. You know, I've just been like <laughs> totally like um, what a goth. I've gothed myself out. It's pretty like, badass, though. The nice girl, Nick. I'm not the girl <laughs> next door. It's the edge. It was the edge. Yes, exactly. You follow up with the Globe Sessions. Again, more successes. We get to the early 2000s, though, and that seems to be a, a, a turning point for you. Um, it's a milestone birthday. The the musical landscape has changed. Tell me about your headspace at this time and how you embrace this milestone uh, moment for you. 
Yeah, I was 39 when I started making the um, Come On, Come On record. And I had been on the road and I came off the road and thought, okay, I'm going to make a record and then I'm going to take some time off, you know, while they're figuring out what to do with it. And that's a pitfall. I mean, that's the old, I'm going to put myself second. And what I really Mm -hmm. needed to do was take time off and have a little living time and then write and record. But instead I threw myself into the studio and a million and a half dollars later with nothing to show for it. Um, I was frantic and I was getting ready to turn 40 and I'm like, Oh my God, I haven't had kids yet. And everybody on MTV is 17 and wearing mm-hmm. like school uniform, you know, <laughs> da- dancing with pythons dancing. And, <laughs> and cleaving. Yeah to your chin and I'm just like this flat chested middle-aged lady <laughs> um, not selling myself short I just had was, good it was hair different. it was yeah. great hair great hair <laughs> and you know what it was it was the what was so cool about the 90s was the authenticity the rawness you know the talent and all of a sudden there was a, a totally different aesthetic that was happening. Yeah. I mean, a lot of dance routines, a lot of lip syncing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was pre top line, but it was still geared towards, you know, mostly dance. And Mm -hmm. I not only could I not relate to it, I was kind of like insulted by, wow, you have this incredible opportunity and you're not even going to sing. You're going to lip sync. It was a different kind of music. It was just a different... It was a different definition, different kind of music, different interpretation. Yes. And historically, I mean, I look at David Bowie and go, that guy was a badass. And then he stepped into Let's Dance. I mean, he brought in Nile Rodgers and he took the music of the moment and he, you know, he controlled it. Like he, oh, he did. He put out an incredible body of work based on what was happening at that moment. And so with the Stones, with Miss You, you know, doing a disco line. I mean, you can take what's happening and try to wrestle it into your thing. Uh, but at that moment, man, I was just like, what the heck am I doing? Um, mm-hmm. and I think ultimately it wound up, you know, we, we did get soak up the sun and I can't remember what else was on that record, but um, I listened to it and I don't hear the machinations that went into it, but there it's all there. It's all there. Was that when, Chrissy Hine gave you some advice. I feel like she came yes. at some point. What did, what did yes. she say to you? I was working at Clinton Studios and, man, I think I was like seven or eight months into making the record and she happened to be in Clinton Studios too. And I'm like, Chrissy, you know, we hung out in the hallway for a while and I was, you know, lamenting this process and she's like, you need to, in her sort of a American English accent, mm-hmm. you need to stop doing what you're doing. You know, your music isn't your life. You know, your life is your life and you take off time and you raise your kids for eight years and then you come back and it's like, you never left, you know? And she was very, she's like, you need, you need to put your life first and then your art will come. And so I did, I took off like a year. I threw myself a crazy 40th birthday that yes. lasted like, uh, you know, for six months as you should. Yeah. Yeah. And then we put out Steve McQueen and, you know, I got my dirt bike out and yes. started. In fact, the shirt is from that video still. Oh, I love that. Isn't yes. that funny? 
So um, good. Then the soak up the sun and on my 40th birthday, the crew got me a surfboard. We were in Hawaii. I learned how to surf. I mean, <laughs> it was the best, the very best year. And then the uh, first cut is the deepest. I mean, it was, it was a great year, but there was some, also some very strange stuff that happened during that time. There's a song on that record called weather channel. And that was really the product of having in the middle of that year and a half, having had a real sort of breakdown and winding up at Cedar Sinai and having been put on Ativan and just mm -hmm. being really, really kind of a mess. Um, so I kind of look at that record and it, it, it was quite a journey. It was quite a journey. Well, it goes back to the, the highs and the, the high highs and the, and the low lows what was it that had caused that low at that time? You know, I think I, all I remember is I was in Boston. We were, we were on the road. Um, you know, that, that taking time off thing wasn't taking time off. It was more taking time away from the record. And we were out on the road and I found myself just one night feeling like I, I don't, I can't move. I don't, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what mm -hmm. I'm doing. And I, I can't even find myself in the picture of my life. And a few days before I, I found myself in that situation, a very well-known artist had, uh, had checked herself into a facility um, for exhaustion because that's kind of what it call, was called yeah. back then, but it was really more, um, you know, life stuff. And I remember calling my manager and saying, I, I don't know what to do. I think if I had the energy, um, and if I cared enough, I would throw myself out the window. And he's like, I'm on my way there. And he got on a train from New York and he came and got me and he's like, we're, we're going to, you know, we've, we've contacted, people at Senior Sinai, they near coming. I'm like, I can't do that because my name will be everywhere. Just like this artist was. And he said, it's not going to happen that way. And they got me in, I got the help I needed. And, you know, I, it's hard to talk about now. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to talk about. It's, yeah. it's, it's, and, and it doesn't scare me like it used to. I feel like my grasp on life is, so much more um, healthy now. I don't think there's anything that is realistic or healthy about being famous. Yeah. And because what happens is that love of the work and that love of the process gets so overshadowed by the pressure of staying famous and staying mm -hmm. popular. And eventually you just start to lose a sense of who you are. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard for me to relate to that now of being that disconnected, but, um, but yeah, it happens when your entire identity. And like you said, you really weren't taking time off. You just were taking time off from physically being in the studio. You still weren't taking time off. So when you, no. your identity is so wrapped up with doing this thing, you almost can lose yourself in it because you can't see what yourself is outside of it. So that's, it's depressing, yes. you know? Right. So it, it almost like swallows you whole. Uh, and also yeah. the, it's an energy thing too, you know, like, the energy of 
being, you know, keeping your own image and yourself and then your band and then the fans. It's almost like a pressure in a way because Mm -hmm. they're seeing you, they've bought a ticket and they're relying on you to make them feel a certain way or relive a certain experience. Like you need a break from all of the energy (laughs) as well. It's true. And if the only time you feel like yourself is when you're on a stage, Mm. You know, that's not dangerous. That's a dangerous place. And you can see why, I mean, the greatest rock and roll stars ever, you can see why drugs were Mm -hmm. so instrumental in helping them navigate it. You know, um, I think if I had had any addictive bone in my body, I'd be dead for, Mm -hmm. you know, for sure. Um, I'm lucky I don't. I could smoke a pack of cigarettes over the course of two or three days and then not smoke again for you know, I just didn't have it. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. But it's, but you do whatever the addiction is, it's still an addiction, you know, that thing is stepping out on stage and being loved from afar, then, you know, at a certain point you sort of have to meet yourself. Exactly. And then, and on top of all of that, you then go through a very painful public breakup and get a, a cancer diagnosis within like days. I mean that that that's enough for anyone to to hit a breaking point but still you persevere and you get through it. How did you even approach that time in your life? I mean honestly God, I'm like the cat with nine lives. Even hearing you say that is like <laughs> this would be like the worst mini series. <laughs> like oh my god, now what? Um how did I get through it? Well, um I had a great sort of, uh, I call him my life chiropractor at the time. Um, this guy in New York who, uh, I had gone to for a few years for acupuncture and just really for some spiritual, uh, chiropractics, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, I had begun meditating before that, but when I got together with Lance, I didn't do that. And I was sort of just wrapped up in his world. And I found my world getting smaller and smaller. And when I would dip my toe into my world, then it was always a big blow up. Mm-hmm. Um, like we can't have two lights that shine at the same time. Um, and so, you know, it, you go from being, uh, your fully formed self to becoming a, a, a product of somebody else's existence. And I, I think the fact that it was not a healthy relationship for me, even though you love who you love. Um, I think the one thing that did keep me from going back and, you know, being on that, uh, that, that habit trail or whatever was my cancer diagnosis. And it was like, okay, Mm. stop and look at this and don't miss the message that is, you know, breasts mean, nourishment they mean nurturing and you are the last person you nurture or nourish and anything that you bring into your life into your physical body or your the body of your spirit that does not serve um is detrimental to health and so i think i came out of that it took me about a year of sitting down and saying i'm not going to write i'm not going to mm-hmm. go to the piano i'm not going to go to the guitar Um, I'm not going to journal. I'm not going to use all these things that have equipped me through my life to not hold an emotion. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to cry. I'm going to be mad. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be scared. I'm going to be human. Yeah, I'm going to be human and I'm going to experience those. And that was one of the things that guy said from New York who said, uh, emotion is the gateway to enlightenment. 
And mm. that's what I did. I meditated. I, out of the clear blue, I, a baby came my way through a Aww. totally strange spiritual connection. Um, and then I sat down and I barfed out a record that felt like uh, I just threw my guts up and it was awesome. Awesome. Oh, I love that, Cheryl. Oh, and I think there were like wow. eight people that bought that record, but nonetheless. <laughs> it was it was all perfect. I handed the record yeah. in and the record label was like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, no. So anyway. I'm so glad that you found yourself as a human being um, and that's what got you through it. It's, it's so inspiring. Um, I really want to also talk about that you – Throughout your career, and maybe even now more than ever, you specifically have been this unique bridge between legendary artists and also rising stars. And of course, your album Threads mm -hmm. is, is the epitome of this. But not many people can can think about, you know, with Keith Richards calling you his little sister, you recording separately with Keith and Mick, you know, writing with Smokey Robinson, you know, Chuck D, the list goes on and on, you know, it's pretty miraculous. Um, with working with all of these greats, and again, having Stevie Nicks producing for Stevie Nicks, I mean, these, these moments, did any of these icons or legendary artists surprise you? Was there any sort of standout moments for you that oh, where you, you, you learned a lot? Oh, I mean, I've learned I'm a lot. I'm sure you have countless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I compare it to, you know, uh, stepping out on the tennis court and you're a pretty good tennis player. And then you start playing with Serena Williams and you're like, oh, shit, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty good, man. And it's because they're upping your game, but they're also like, I'm going to slam one just to remind you though. <laughs> you're not really it. that good. I love it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think for me, the connections that you make when you're sharing music and music is, I mean, it's not definable. Obviously art is that thing that I think, it's a, you know, it's a soul thing. It's a spirit thing. It's a, um, it's a thing that did not exist before you opened your mouth or before you played that crazy guitar riff or, and sharing in that is, I mean, to me, that's like God, it's like worship. It's, um, you know, I guess for all intents and purposes, for lack of a better word, it is spirit. You know, it is mm -hmm. when you get out of your own way, when the ego is, um, you know, you're frustrated with the fact that you can't, I can't finish this amazing song. And you put that ego thing aside, all of a sudden you get something that is genuine and that you go, wow, I would never have written that. Where'd that come from? And, you know, that's what inspiration is. And it's what, it's what Carlos Santana talks about, like the molecules. Yes. It's a, it's a physical yes. thing. And then when you get somebody in, the room that you know i mean i can remember working with keith richards and him being nervous wow he had been uh newly sober mm -hmm. and um and he was nervous and it there was a moment where it's like oh you know what it doesn't matter how far you you are up in the you know the the logs of history of having created a whole genre of music yeah. You can still be vulnerable and you can still be fragile and scared. Yes. Um, and that's where the wonder, I think, that's where the wonder lives. Love that. And so, to, I mean, I've had so many experiences. I mean, working with Chris Christofferson, who 
knew, I mean, we had, we'd had a long friendship and working with him and knowing that he, he knew me, he wasn't sure why he knew me, but he knew he had good feelings toward me and to sing with him and to hear him talk about memories from the 60s, 70s, like clear as a bell, but then not to be able to remember that he, we had just recorded something. That's how fleeting and fragile our existence is. And music is the salve, you know, it's, it's the thing that gives us a collective experience where we feel like you wrote that for me, didn't you? You know, oh, how did you know yes. I was feeling that way? So, you know, that for me, that's, I don't know if there's anything better. Most recently, and it was one of the most powerful performances with you, Bonnie Ray at Mick Fleetwood, you know, doing Songbird, um, honoring Christine McVie. What was that like, that moment? How did you even get into that headspace? So we had a really strange experience uh, honoring Christine. Now, I, I love Christine. I mean, all the way back pre-Stevie. And it meant so much to me that Mick wanted me to do it and wanted Bonnie to do it. And here's Bonnie. You know, we have this full circle thing. Yeah. And we rehearse it and it's beautiful and it's heartfelt. And we're all like, okay, just don't look at Christine up there. Yeah. So we don't cry. So the whole thing starts, right? Um, and there's the, the beautiful tribute to Offset. They bring us out. We mm -hmm. know we get four clicks and then we start and it's timed to the images. And I test the piano and it is sticking. It's not oh, like no. the pedal sticking. And I turn around and I'm like, it's not working the pedals. And then the click starts. And so I start playing and I'm playing the notes. You know, I play by ear. So I know, I know mm -hmm. where my hands are going and only two notes at a time we're playing. And Bonnie's looking at me like, and I, I'm so shaken up. So I, yeah. I just, I don't know. I mean, that's another thing where you just go, you give it up to God and you go, just help me yeah. walk through this. So start playing, start singing. I'm singing really loud. So Bonnie knows we're still in the same key. That something's going on. Yeah. Then Bonnie starts singing and then it just sounds like there's a cat walking through the piano. And then halfway through it, the piano changes keys. So I don't know if they were trying to fix the MIDI. Right. So, you right, know, right. on a keyboard, the keyboard was MIDI, but they also had the full um, piano. And luckily what the audience heard, because the director could tell at the very first, because he was hearing it, something's wrong. And they flipped over okay. to the mics, but we never heard the mics. So we thought I was going to say, we would hearing. have no idea. We did yeah. not know anything like this was happening. And it shows no, us what a professional you are. We had no idea. I was, I stood up afterwards and as soon as it was over, I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. And uh, Brandy Carlisle called me the next day and she goes, what happened? I saw you stand up and yell, what the fuck? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I wish I would have done that. <laughs> so what the audience heard was not what we heard. Yeah, right. Was okay. Heard. And I was going to yeah. post it. I have a copy of what we heard and it is hilarious. Oh but it's my almost God. impossible to understand because why you have two feeds uh, anyway. It sounded, it was beautiful for us. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. For me, I have PTSD. Yeah. Oh, well, it was beautiful <laughs> for the fans. And I'm glad you mentioned Brandy because I also want to talk about, we talked about the leg, the legends, but 
this, you know, the new generation, whether it's Brandy, Phoebe Bridgers, Haim, Lord, Jason Isbell, you know, St. Vincent has called you the female Tom Petty. You know, I love that. I love her. How does that make you feel knowing that you are sort of bridging this gap between the generations and inspiring a whole new generation? I'm so much more selfish than that. I mean, I, I, I guess I can't, um, uh, in my body feel like, oh, you're a big influence for me. I'm so much more selfish. I listen to their music and I'm, uh, I'm so inspired to keep doing what I'm doing. Like, oh my God, I love this. And that makes me want to get in the studio, you know? And I, 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 through, through the years, like early, early on, um, Brandy opened for us on a lot of tours and I got to know her and just to see her brilliance. Now, obviously we'd open up for her cause she's massive. And I love that. I mean, I, I root for her. I, um, I admire her. I, lo I love her also. Aww. I love her as a person and as a friend, I have that kind of mother pride thing, you know? Um, but there's, there's a kindred thing there that I know that any one of these artists also will champion the young artists that come along because they're built the way I am where music is just like this awesome thing we get to do. Aww. And we want other great people to get to do it for a long time. So, you know, it means a lot to have somebody acknowledge not only your hard work, but the fact that you're bringing yourself to it, you know, and yeah. that's, that's a thing, man. That is a thing. And perhaps my favorite thing about the documentary, seeing you as a mother and, and Wyatt and Levi are just so beautiful. And as a mother of two boys, it just really spoke to me. And I love that your new song forever incorporates the boys. That song makes me cry. It's uh, I'm like thinking like mm. tearing up. It's a, it's an instant classic. That song it's a, it's Thank probably you. my new favorite song. And um, how, you know, how has motherhood changed you as a person and as an artist? Oh, I mean, in every great way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's simplified things. I mean, I, I make all of my decisions based on them. And yeah, um, I mean, that's not to say I don't take care of myself, but there's nothing I feel like I'm missing by not going to something if my kids have a basketball game or a fishing tournament or whatever. Um. You know, they've opened my eyes uh, to the the best parts of our humanity. Um, they also make me laugh all the time. Um, I love it. I mean, they are f wicked funny. I mean, I'd love to totally take credit for all of their um, their DNA inherited sense of humor and, you know, all of that. They are adopted, <laughs> but they're awesome people. They're just great. They're great people. And, um, I just am so honored and it's going so fast and I hate it, but it's the best yes. thing ever. I mean, it's just the best oh, thing ever. I get best. to look at them and go, I mean, it's interesting. Like yesterday, my 15 year old and I had a, a conversation about this thing called catfishing like mm -hmm. the internet where somebody tries to draw you in and then they say, send nude pictures and then they extort you for money. And I was, we were talking about it because he asked me about this boy who had committed suicide. And I'm just like, Wyatt, the world that you're growing up in, just know that it's not, it, it's not as ugly sometimes as it feels and that you, mm -hmm. there is nothing you can't bring home. I mean, just know there's nothing you can't bring home. And that, Aww. you know, those conversations are not conversations that I ever had with my parents. It's just a whole different world now, you know? 
but what a gift. I think it's just um, teaching them that, that empathy and compassion and being a good person and communication, like you just said, are the most important things. It's, and that's the key to survival. The whole thing. <laughs> yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, that's what that song is about. Um, yeah. It's just, you know, about making sure every moment you spend is a moment that you're in, you know. When you take some time to think about that you, all of the things that you are, a multi-instrumentalist, a producer, a Grammy award winning, a, a Golden Globe nominee, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominee, a, a, a woman, a mother, a force, you know, all of these things, the list goes on and on. What do you hope that people who've known you their whole lives or people who are just learning about you take away from your music and your stories? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, um, I hope people will get a sense of uh, of hope, you know, no matter how fragile we are and how disillusioned we might become, um, that, you know, the, there's hope all around us. We just have to tap into it and not get bogged down with um with how, you know, how dark things may seem. Um, I hope people can find hope in my music and, um, and some sense of humor, you know, that goes a long way. Uh, I think laughing and music are the top two salves as far as I'm concerned. Yes. I'm with you on that. Yes. Oh my God, Cheryl, you were the best. We do this quick thing called deep cuts where it's just sort of quick answers. Okay. Name a song, artist, or album that changed your life. Oh my gosh. Uh, All Things Must Pass. Easy. Perfect. Do you remember your first concert? Uh, Yes, I do. It was Peter Frampton. I was 13 years old. And uh, that's like the ultimate best concert to go to. Do you feel... That's amazing. Like I do. I'm like, I'm 13. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel, but I feel it. (laughs) I'm feeling it. Feeling it right now. What is a song that you wish you wrote? Oh my gosh. I wish I would have written uh, Blackbird. I say it all the time. (sighs) Yeah. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Incredible. What is your favorite meal or cuisine? Oh gosh. Um, My favorite meal. Well, I do like a good hamburger. I'm not a lot of you. I mean, hamburger, french fries, burger fi. I can strongly recommend that down <laughs> the street. That. I love that. I know that you collect vintage gear. Do you have a favorite piece or prized possession? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. I do love my Fairchild. If I could, you know, wear it, I would. Because I know how much money it cost. And I bought it like 30 <laughs> years ago. Amazing. That value is better than diamonds. Missouri. That's right. That's right. What does rock and roll mean to you? Rock and roll for me is uh, the best drug in the world. It just is. It's the best drug in the world. I'm with you. I mean, give me, give me some ACDC. Give me some Steve Miller. Give me some, um, give me some, uh, I like Jet. They're new. Yes. Uh, Give me some, uh, obviously, Derek and the Dominoes. I mean. Great, great. Yeah. Give me some Beatles. I love that. Give me the freaking Rolling Stones. Yeah. I'll have all of those, please. Thank you. I could go on and on and on. I love that. Um, what do you hope your boys learn from you? I hope they learn compassion and empathy, but I think they came in with that. So um, I hope they learn to love music. Uh, my 15-year-old plays incredible bass. Um, so awesome. But I hope they just learn to love old and new music. Right now, they find it irritating. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like, why are you playing that old stuff on, you know, <laughs> Sunday mornings? Do we have to listen to that? Yes, you do. Yes, you do, actually. Do they like your <laughs> music? Right. Do they listen to you at all? Um, I played something for Wyatt yesterday that I'd been working on in the studio yesterday. And he's like, yeah, I kind of like that, Mom. I told him, I said, you know, I said I wasn't going to make any more albums. And I, I, I'm I working on some new music. And he goes, Mom, I'm really proud of you. I was just like, oh, <laughs> I love you. You are working on new music. It just might not be in a body of work. It might just be prolific writing and, and putting it out as it comes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I may put out an EP. I don't know. I mean, I mm -hmm. feel like making a whole album is a colossal waste of time and money. Just put it mm -hmm. out. I mean, I could get hit by a car tomorrow. So let's just get it out. You know what I'm saying? I can't wait to hear what you're working on. If forever is any indication of where you're at and where you're going, I'm here for it. I love it. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you, Allison. Oh, it's such a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you. Keep rocking, girl. Thank you. That's the plan. That's the plan. Cheryl is just one of a kind. She has accomplished so much and is still so incredibly humble and gracious. What a talent and a class act individual. She truly is. It is now time for my sound advice. New music you need to know featured on the Allison Hagendorf Show playlist, and you could find the link to that in the show notes. First up this week is the latest song from Paris Jackson. I have been following Paris's musical journey, and I love what she is doing. She is such innate talent, and this song is her most raw and vulnerable to date, and you know I am loving the Nirvana and the grunge elements on it. But my favorite part is that Paris rocks a killer scream on this song as well. Paris Jackson's latest, Band-Aid, is my new favorite song. Next on my sound advice is the Irish band Inhaler. I have been very vocal about how much I love this band. They are the real deal. They are an amazing live band. Their new album, Cuts and Bruises, is a beauty start to finish. But I'm going to feature the album's opening track, Check Out Inhaler with Just To Keep You Satisfied. Next on my sound advice is the English indie rock band, The Rayans. Their album, What's Rock and Roll, came out earlier this year, and their album opener is actually my favorite as well. Check out 15 Minutes in the Algorithm. It is so good. Also, my sound advice is the band Bexley. Frontwoman Amanda Hardy is from Seattle, so understandably references bands like Alice in Chains and Chris Cornell as her favorites. But this song is definitely more straightforward rock and roll, so I'm hearing more Queens of the Stone Age influence on this one. Check out Bexley's In the Night, especially her distorted scream at the end, which of course is my favorite part of the song. Next up is Enter Shikari. I have been a fan of these guys for a while, and I'm loving your latest music off of their forthcoming album, A Kiss for the Whole World. This song came to the singer in a dream, and he literally started recording it into his phone while he was still in bed with his girlfriend at like three in the morning. I love hearing stories like this. This song is a staple for my workouts. It is Enter Shikari with It Hurts. That's my sound advice this week. You can find them all on the Allison Hagendorf Show playlist, which is on every platform. The link is in the show notes and on my site, allisonhagendorf.com. Thank you so much, as always, for being part of the Allison Hagendorf Show. New episodes drop every Friday morning, so make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I am telling you, our lineup for March, Women's History Month, it's pretty stellar. If Joan Jett and Cheryl Crow are any indication, I suggest you keep tuning in. 
Thank you in advance. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts and you can actually watch the show on YouTube and Instagram. I would love to hear from you. So please like, comment, rate, review, whatever you're feeling and reach out to me on socials at Allie Hagendorf. I would love to connect with you. Thank you so much again. I'll see you next week. And remember, you're a rock star. Bye.